this hour came from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles, as well as rustic collections with showrooms at Lake Wampopec, downtown Honesdale, Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. Support also comes from Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, Lords Valley, and Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, WMH.org. It's WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Well, gather around the radio because it's time again for Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. of course, to provide news, entertainment, and useful information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. Before we get started tonight, though, here are some important military dates for the month of May. May is National Military Appreciation Month, the month that we recognize and show appreciation to the armed forces of the United States. May 1st, an important day, Loyalty Day, a day set aside for American citizens to reaffirm their loyalty to the United States and to recognize the heritage of American freedom. May 1st is also Silver Star Banner Day, a day set aside to honor our wounded, ill, and dying military personnel by flying a Silver Star Banner. May 7th, Military Spouse Appreciation Day, a day set aside to acknowledge the contributions and sacrifices of the spouses of the U.S. Armed Forces. May 8th, VE Day, a day which marks the anniversary of the Allied victory in Europe during World War II. May 9th is Mother's Day. May 13th is Children of Fallen Patriots Day, a day to honor the families our fallen heroes have left behind, especially the children. It is a reminder to the community that we have a shared obligation to support the families of our fallen patriots. May 15th is Armed Forces Day, a day we pay tribute to the men and women who serve in the U.S. Armed Forces, and May 31st is Memorial Day, formerly Decoration Day, the day we set aside to commemorate all who have died in military service to the United States. May 1st is celebrated in many ways around the world. For many, it's a celebration of renewal in warmer weather. For many, it's International Workers' Day. Here we celebrate Loyalty Day. Now, loyalty is defined as a devotion and faithfulness to a nation, cause, philosophy, country, group, or person. And no one appreciates that more than our servicemen and women. However, loyalty is a two-way street. Why are we loyal to our country? Well, the United States has always been loyal to us, right? It's always been a beacon of hope to the oppressed, a promise of opportunity for its citizens, and a place where we are all free to speak our opinion and worship as we please. 
where we elect people to govern at our consent. However, the things which make this country great cannot be taken for granted. Just as we've had to defend our nation and our allies from tyranny and oppression around the globe, we must also remain vigilant here at home. It is clear today we are a nation divided and at risk from what James Madison called the tyranny of the majority. Now, he was not talking about the American people at large. He was warning us that governments can go astray if we allow them to do so. A democracy recognizes only the rule of the majority, while a republic provides that all sides have a voice. And that is why our country is a republic. And our Constitution is the law of the land, not some vision statement subject to revision at the whim of political winds. We must protect it at all costs from those who seek to defile it, and with it, our country. If we as citizens fail to demand that our elected officials act within the rule of law, we are indeed disloyal to our country, but more importantly to all of those who gave their lives that we might remain free. One of the most important things we do on this program is to provide a platform for veterans to tell their stories. Now, they're not always easy to listen to, but then again, that's the point. It is our hope that civilians will gain a new appreciation for the sacrifice our military women and men have made, and that by sharing their experience, fellow vets will understand they're not alone. Recently, we had a great conversation with Everett Cox, a U.S. Army veteran, who actually was deployed to Germany but felt so strongly about the mission in Vietnam, he requested a transfer. And contrary to military precedent, he got what he asked for. Thus began a long and arduous journey, and as you will hear, Everett is still on the road. Well, good morning, Everett Cox, and welcome to WJFF Radio Catskills. Let's talk vets. How are you? Fine, thank you. You have quite a remarkable story. Let's start with your service. Where, when, what branch did you serve? Well, I grew up in Orange County, New York. And when I was 19 years, one month old, I got my draft notice. When I got that, I enlisted in the U.S. Army and went to Fort Jackson for my basic training. Then I went to Fort Monmouth for signal school training. Um, with aerial cameras and then I went to Germany and while I was in Germany the Soviet Union with the Warsaw Pact nations invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968 and it reminded me that I had enlisted in the army uh, to fight communism the the US Army in, in Germany at that time was not going to take on the Soviet Union and so I volunteered for Vietnam, and in 1969, I got my orders for Vietnam and uh, went there. actually got my order in April 1969, and I landed in Vietnam in June 1969. 
it was not a long tour and uh, came back and was separated and later discharged. I asked you initially for a bit of a biographical sketch to help me formulate this interview. And what you sent me was a a story which uh, ultimately takes us through your journey. And it begins with a rocket attack on Marble Mountain Air Base. And at that moment, you say that Everything about you except your physical being died. In essence, you were outside yourself as a, as a bystander, or a ghost, if you will. And you write that following this seminal event, you felt you had to destroy everything that was, in essence, you. And uh, so if you could take us back to that event. Um, Marble Mountain Air Base was a Marine-managed, um, operated air base. Uh, with two Army companies, I was in the 245th Surveillance Airplane Company. That's where I used the camera training I had. And there was a, I believe it was the 282nd Assault Helicopter Company. And we had random, occasional mortar and or rocket attacks. And one night, we had a rocket attack. And... It just knocked me into almost like another kind of consciousness, terrified me. I went into a complete panic, and it altered my life. I suppose the the psychological term at the time might have been like a nervous breakdown, but I, I, I began some kind of psychological disintegration, and... I stopped eating. Um, I stopped associating with uh, other soldiers. I, because of the work I did with cameras, I, I, ha- I would get up early, go to a, a, a blackout closet, put film into a cassette, put the cassette into a camera, load the camera into an airplane so I didn't have to attend formations. And then I would hide out into the flight return or flights and and then remove the cameras, remove the film, and uh, hand them over for development. And I I just stopped eating. I uh, lost a lot of weight. I didn't sleep well. And I think I think that's when I understood that. I was in enemy territory, and they wanted me dead. And uh, I, at one point, I went to my first sergeant, and I said, I want to put in an application to become a helicopter door gunner. And he said to me, I, you can submit that application, but you will never leave my office. He He understood, I think, that something had happened. He didn't ask for any details, and I didn't offer any. So upon your quote-unquote return to the world, you say, I came home from Vietnam. I did not deserve to live. I could not be forgiven. I had become less than human, unquote. You were dedicated to a mission, one which would end your struggle within, you hoped. And you speak of your quest to find the words that will stop suicide, although you were fairly sure, I think, that there were none. 
what I what I felt in in Vietnam after that rocket attack was that I had sailed under fire, and that I was a disgrace. That I had been trained not to fail, and that with my panic, I had failed. Well, while I was in Vietnam, I became suicidal after that failure under fire. I felt uh, suicidal, and when I returned to the United States, it didn't help, of course, that at that time, soldiers were not being welcomed home. I remember MPs at the gate, and they said to me, get out of that uniform as fast as you can, because they will spit on you. And I, I took the red eye to New York, and when I got to New York, the MPs stopped me at JFK because I was really not in uniform. I, it was just a temporary thing, no patches. And they looked at my orders and they said, get out of that uniform as fast as you can because they will spit on you. And I had already felt disgraced. I felt I had disgraced myself. And, and there was a hostile public. And the single biggest thing on my mind was, when am I going to kill myself? Not where, not how, but when. When am I going to do this? And I attempted a number of times and uh, sometimes really hurt myself by failing. So at, at one point you did reach out for professional help and they were very helpful. You received a diagnosis that you were paranoid schizophrenic. It would get progressively worse. There was no cure, and eventually you would be uh, institutionalized. Did this prognosis vindicate your commitment to suicide? Yes, absolutely. At that time, uh, 1969, there was no diagnosis for PTSD. And many, I think I read one time that 25% of the returning uh, soldiers from, from Vietnam were diagnosed as paranoid and or paranoid schizophrenic, which was my diagnosis. And it's a hopeless diagnosis. It was death waiting to happen. And yes, that definitely pushed me towards thinking, I just have to destroy myself. I have to end this. So you say at this point, you were essentially empty in every way. However, you decided not to kill yourself until you found a reason to live. I wonder if you could explain your thought process to our listeners at that point. I would say there were two things going on. One was, it's not that hard to kill yourself. And a failed suicide signaled to me that deep down there was something in me that did want to live. And the other side of that for me was that I, I don't, I'm not sure how, how I want to say it. I, I, I just felt that, that other people knew something I did not. And I, I couldn't figure that out. You know, I have, I have an older sister, two younger brothers. My parents were alive at the time and friends and neighbors. And it was like, they knew something I didn't. And this thing about um, refusing to kill myself until I had a reason to live, 
it was almost like having a mind game with God. I would beg God for a reason to live. I would stand at the railing of the George Washington Bridge. I probably did that a hundred times, and I would beg God for a reason to live. And God never answered me until, until much later, much, much later. But I thought there had to be a reason. It was a way for me to keep just a tiny glimmer of hope that I would find a reason to live. And so you were attending college, and you decided that it wasn't working out for you, and you decided to work with your hands. And so you did a, a variety of of things, landscaping and snowmaking at a ski resort, I guess, and merchant seaman and a house parent for a dozen wayward teenage boys. Now, that's got to be a tough assignment right there. Well, I grew up on a farm. My parents didn't farm, but we had plenty of animals of our own. Uh, it was leased to uh, two farmers in Warwick. And so I knew a lot about labor and, and heavy labor. And what I found with labor was that it could help me manage anger and it could help me manage depression, primarily just by being exhausted. I would be too tired to want to do much else. And I had these other labor t intensive jobs, merchant seamen. When I went to sea, it was something I wanted to do and had wanted probably since I was a teenager and had read about sailors and, and voyages. And But the first ship I was on, almost everybody was an alcoholic. It was one of the loneliest experiences of my life. And I got off that ship and my brother said to me, how come you left? And I said, I was just so lonely. I was impossibly lonely. And he said, well, go work with people. And so there was a, a school for teenage boys placed by the courts. And I had uh, a person that I worked with. And it was, it was emotionally demanding every day, very emotionally demanding. Those boys were not happy. Uh, many were angry. I was angry. They were angry. I was depressed. They were depressed. But they, they demanded I pay attention to them. They drew me out whether I wanted to be or not. It really helped me to understand that human connections could be very helpful for me. So did you find some common ground with those kids, even though obviously your experience and their experience was totally different? Well, yeah, the common ground, I would say, on one hand was violence. Almost all had come from violent families. They had been removed from their families by courts for, for reasons of abuse. So that was one part of it. Another part of it was a desire to love and be loved. It was, in many ways, just a very powerful, heartfelt experience. They, they craved love and they would show that by being loving. That's not to say we didn't have violent 
experiences with each other. I would say with every boy that I worked with, I had to disarm them. And when I say disarm them, not only because they were fighting amongst themselves, but, but it was sort of like a rite of passage that they would have to attack me. They would, they would get a knife and come after me. And I was, I was what, maybe two years out of the army. I, I could disarm them and, you know, just say, this is not the way to do things. I mean, I, at that time, I, I can't think back and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm an anti-war guy. I just, I just knew that these boys, even, even coming after me with a knife was, was looking for attention. And, and I would even say looking for love, which might sound contradictory, but they were hurt. I was hurt. And overall, we lived well together. I mean, peacefully. So your journey saw more twists and turns, and uh, your odyssey continued to, and I had never heard of these, but uh, alternative colleges. And then ultimately you worked with the United Nations. Tell us about that. I had attended four or five colleges. I was a student at Orange County Community College. It was toward the end of a semester, and I attempted suicide. It was physically brutal, and a favorite professor noticed something had happened, and I told him, and he was shocked. He said, you need to find an alternative school. And I asked him what that was, and he told me, look for it, you'll find it. And then I found New Experimental College in Denmark. I would say that... I had the GI Bill uh, for education. I was looking for a place where I could use my GI Bill, get out of the country and speak English. A new experimental college uh, allowed that. In the 60s and 70s, there were many alternative schools trying different kinds of approaches to education, many kinds of international schools. And I, I liked that new experimental college, and they were part of an association uh, today called the Association for World Education. And they had NGO status with the United Nations. And so after about seven years at new experimental college, I found myself representing the Association for World Education at the United Nations. And one of the things we had discussed at new experimental college was how to establish a global minimum wage linked to a universal health insurance. And I, I brought that idea to the United Nations, and I spent many years there trying to promote it among the NGO community at the United Nations uh, without any success at all. But it, for me, it was a, just a great experience. The comprehensive view of the United Nations about economic and social policies that could be for the common good. It suited me so well. Yeah, it was it was a great experience for me. That had to be a great place to learn. I mean, being exposed to all these different people, all these different cultures and understanding absolutely. their view of the things that you absolutely. were discussing, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So ultimately, you met someone, you were married, and you had a, a son. Yes. And um, 
the birth of your son changed a lot, but uh, ultimately not really, right? So my son was born 23 years after Vietnam. I was still suicidal, still having depressions. And I promised him I would not kill myself, but it didn't stop the suicidal thoughts or the depressions or the rages. Uh, but I just, I adored him. And I wanted to be the best daddy I could be. I wanted to be as good a father as I could be. And I devoted myself to him as much as I could. But it, I could be, I could be violent to my son. I could, I still had rages, and and that gave me great shame that I couldn't control myself. I often feel, in hindsight, that the first time I hit my child in anger, I should have gone for help. I promised myself it never happened again. It would happen again. The first time it happened, I should have gone for help. So, ultimately, your marriage failed, your business failed, and then you found yourself back in school again, taking a course of all things in negotiation and discovering something important about yourself. Well, the, the course on negotiation I took at the, the Omega Institute that's here in the Hudson Valley, and I chose that. Partly because I, I wanted to get away from labor. My whole life had been in labor. And it was something we would discuss at the United Nations, something we would discuss at New Experimental College. How do we get along with each other? And, and I wanted to study uh, negotiation, thinking that I might become some kind of negotiator. But during that course, we used archetypes. And one of the archetypes is warrior. And... I was not living as a warrior. I was living as a shadow warrior. It was a real shock to me. It was like I had not dealt with that Vietnam experience except through depressions, rage, drugs, suicide attempts. And, and now I had a different perspective on that. If I'm living my life through, through this shadow, I have to do something about it. That was 2009. The following year, 2010, I went to a retreat again at Omega Institute, this time led by uh, a former U.S. Army helicopter door gunner and crew chief named Claude Thomas. He had come home and suffered enormously from his war experience, and he had become a Buddhist monk, and now he was leading retreats for veterans. I had a private meeting with him. I told them that I had two secrets from Vietnam, and one was about my failure under fire, and the other was about that I only wanted to be dead after that. And he said to me, you're surrounded by vets here to retreat. My suggestion is you start telling them. And what I remembered most about meeting with uh, Claude Thomas was he didn't condemn me. And then I started speaking with soldiers, other veterans, and no one condemned me. And I had condemned myself for more than 40 years. That just released something in me that, that nobody was condemning me. And I, I just, I, I, I started crying and I, I cried actually for years.
trying to make sense of that. In essence, I guess you gave yourself permission to say what you couldn't say and to write what you what you couldn't write up to that point, but you found some purpose and some meaning in the creative arts, specifically the Warrior Writers Workshop and Impact Theater Veterans Project and Exit 12 Dance Company. Now, I viewed the video uh, Moved by War. Take us through that part of your awakening, as it were. One of the books that 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 um, Claude Thomas, his, his Buddhist name is Anshin, one of the books he recommended was had been written by a a Veterans Administration, I believe he was a psychiatrist, and it was called Achilles in Vietnam, and it's the story of the the Greek the Greek hero war hero Achilles, and then his betrayal. And I read that book, and one of the things it brought up was that the Vietnam veterans coming back were being diagnosed as paranoid and paranoid schizophrenic. And it was like, yeah, so? About a month later, at New Paltz College, there was a symposium uh, for New York State Association of Social Workers. The purpose was to introduce them to PTSD and traumatic brain injury. And veterans could attend for free. And I went there and Ed Tick, who founded Soldier's Heart and who had been treating veterans with PTSD for most of his life, was the presenter on PTSD. And when he described it, I said, well, gee, he's describing what I'm experiencing. And between that book, understanding that the early veterans from Vietnam were being diagnosed as paranoid and or paranoid schizophrenic, and then the understanding of of PTSD shocked me. A month after that, at the William F. Joyner Center for the Study of War and Social Consequences at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, they had an annual writing workshop, and I went to that, and I began writing. And writing and speaking changed my life. Soon after that, I was introduced to a program called Veteran-Civilian Dialogue, uh, which brought together veterans and civilians to talk about uh, military and war experiences. I actually volunteered for them and started organizing veteran-civilian dialogues. Along the way, I was introduced to uh, a program called Warrior Writers. Actually, it was at the Joiner Center in, in Boston that I was introduced to Warrior Writers. There was a Warrior Writer group meeting uh, monthly in Manhattan, and I started attending there. And and we were they, they were fairly large workshops. We could be twenty people or twenty five people, and and we would write to a prompt, and then read to each other. It was it was very powerful to release these stories. While I was there, we were meeting in a studio owned by a founder of Impact Theater. Faye Simpson, and she came one day and said that uh, she wanted to create a theater piece with veterans, for veterans, and was looking for volunteers, and I volunteered. 
And so we created a, a theater piece. It was, it was great. It was great to be performing in public. Uh, we performed for the Veterans Hospital in Manhattan. We performed for the American Red Cross in Manhattan. We performed for the Veterans Mental Health Coalition in, in New York City. We performed for colleges, for LaGuardia Community College. We performed at New Paul's College. And it was great to be out sharing a common story of war and after war. I was one of the writers who came to Warrior Writers was Roman Baca. And Roman had started his dance company, Exit 12. And he was inviting veterans to work with him to express war experiences through dance. And so every time one of these opportunities came, I took it. And it just was transformational for me. Helped me just, again, I still have tendencies to rage, depression, and I still have suicidal thoughts. But everything has become much more manageable. And these days you work with uh, Joseph P. Dwyer Vet to Vet Peer Counseling in Middletown, New York. Middletown is where the office is. I'm almost never in the office. Uh, I was with a vet this morning, uh, very early. We we help vets in any way we can. We, we help if they're homeless, getting them into shelters or housing. If they're hungry, get them food. If they're addicted, to get them into recovery. We We try to provide what they need. And very often it's just ears. And, and a lot of vets need to be heard. And that's that's what we offer with the Joseph Dwyer program. All right. So, Everett, I have to ask you one more question. Did okay. you ever find the words you were looking for? Yes, I did. And it turned out I knew the words all along. For me personally, going out into nature was what I needed using my hands was what I needed gardening landscaping these things this is what I needed these were the words also being engaged socially I needed to be working with those boys those those homeless boys those are the words social life some kind of social life and I also believe service is one of the words. I volunteered for military service. What I didn't understand when I came home is that I needed to continue in service. And so helping others, like the work I do now with vet to vet So service is a word. Arts. I don't know if all arts, but for me, certainly writing. I have made combat paper for my old uniforms. I have been in theater, I have been in dance. So involvement in the arts is another word to help stop suicide or prevent suicide. Is there one message, overall message, that you'd like to leave with other vets, family members, or caregivers who might be listening today? What, what, I, what I learned is that life wants to live. Human beings, we, ha we have this thing we call our minds, and we think, I think we, we have a tendency to mix up our minds 
with this life energy that is in us. Life wants to live. The mind, the mind may direct us to suicide. But if we can listen to the life within us and support that, find a way to support that, not with drugs, not with drinking, numbing, isolation, none of these things, but find ways to support the life that wants to live within us, then, then there's a good chance to avoid suicide. Everett, I want to thank you so much for sharing your innermost thoughts and feelings. We do these stories in the hopes that it will help someone else who might be listening, and I, I think that your story and your message certainly has the capability of doing that, and I, and I hope it does. Thank you so much, Everett. You're most welcome. I hope it does, too. Thank you, Doug. You're listening to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill, WJFF. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Each month, the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force provides members a ton of information pertinent to the veteran community. And recently, we heard from Mary Ann Goodwin. She's a clinical professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She's director of the JJPVA Suicide Prevention Research and Care Center, and the Mental Illness Education Research Clinical Center. She's past president of North American Society for the Study of Personality Disorders. At our February meeting, Marianne told us all about lethal means safety training for families and loved ones of at-risk veterans. Here now, Marianne Goodwin. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you for inviting me. In the veteran service community, we hear a lot and we talk a lot about veteran suicide and some of the root causes, such as post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury, physical injury, loss of personal identity, uh, being surrounded by a society that does not understand you, and having to fight for the VA benefits that you've earned. Now, you presented the concept of Lethal Means Safety Training for Families and Loved Ones of At-Risk Veterans at our February meeting of the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force. So while clinical care has evolved, the frontline battles are still fought by caregivers, those spouses, children, relatives, friends, all who interact with the vets every day. And it's only in the last decade or so that agencies like the VA have developed tangible support and resources for those caregivers who are instrumental in helping our vets live meaningful lives. So let's start with a 10,000-foot view of the veteran suicide problem in the U.S., more specifically in New York, from your perspective as a mental health professional and a teacher. About 17 veterans kill themselves every day, and the bulk of those, about 11 out of the 17, uh, do not seek care at the VA. 
And so it's really um, an effort to try to figure out ways to reach veterans in order to best help them not take their lives. And one of the best ways to do that is to figure out a way to minimize the impact of lethal means. And by that, I mean firearms and medications are the two most potent lethal means. About 70% of veterans who die by suicide do so uh, using firearms. And so if we're really serious about bringing down veteran suicide, we've got to be much more proactive, making sure that those firearms and medications are safely stored and not accessible during times of intense stress or distress. And part of the way that we're doing that is Previously, it had been done through giving trainings to frontline workers, uh, emergency room physicians and nurses when somebody shows up at the emergency room suicidal and, and sort of education is done at that point. But that's a very small number of individuals who actually show up uh, in emergency rooms. And we figured that if we could help family members who are, as you mentioned in the introduction, on the front line with their loved veterans, that this would be the strategy to try to intervene. This subject of lethal means training, uh, I've never heard before you discussed it. So let's talk about that a little bit more. And I'd like to know uh, how and when that you became involved with this particular aspect of preventing veteran suicide. So I'm I'm a psychiatrist. I work in the Bronx VA. It's also called the James J. Peters VA. And I've been working with high-risk suicidal veterans for about 15 years or so. In that period of time, I've done a lot of work with high-risk patients. And only in the last couple of years has there been a lot of emphasis in the field about making sure you interview about firearms, where are they stored, where are they kept, you have access to one. Um, And in spite of being a psychiatrist for 30 years, it's really just the last couple of years where this has kind of been the emphasis, so much so that the VA and all the suicide research pieces are really emphasizing lethal means and, and actually asking people to develop things and do a much better job informing other providers how to do this work. What's novel here is not just educating providers, but educating family members. And I think that's what makes this discussion a little more unique. I became involved in this piece of involving family members in something called the New York State Governor's Challenge. And that's a challenge to prevent veteran suicide. And this brings suicide professionals across New York State together. We've been doing this for about a year now. Um, And one of the three groups of this governor's challenge is about lethal means safety. And I ended up on that particular subgroup. And our project that we developed from that group is the one that's targeting family members. That project was subsequently funded by the New York Health Foundation. So we're very indebted to them. And that project entails actually building a training for family members. And we're in the process of doing that right now. The grant started in January. We hope to have this training developed by Veterans Day um, and, and delivering it to family members from that point on. 
Okay, so this is a little bit newer than I I (laughs) suspected. Yeah, I realized. Okay, so let's talk about the elephant in the room. So how do you convince a veteran or their caregivers that this is not to negate or at least severely undermine Second Amendment rights? Uh, Absolutely. And in fact, um, in order for me to develop this training, I wanted to interview and speak to veterans and their family members about this topic. And we actually sent out advertisements across the state to try to talk to people. And I did get mail back from people saying just that, that why are you doing this? And and I'm like, I was a little surprised and taken back at first. And then I realized that this could be confused, especially because it's called the governor's challenge. So it sounds like it's part of the government, but it's not. It's it's a challenge to the governor to do something about this. And so the way I try to explain this is that we're not taking firearms away. We're just trying to make the firearms that are there as safe as possible. Um, Safe, not just for the veteran, but for the veteran's family. If there's children involved in the household, you want to keep those firearms um, so that they're used for the purposes of recreation, protection, not used for the purposes of hurting oneself if you're in a bad place or in a vulnerable place. And so this is really just about helping families make things as safe as possible. I hope that helps explain one perspective. Yes, it does. And um, my next question is kind of a a follow-up to that. But based upon your feedback, what do you expect that the acceptance of the people that you're trying to educate to this concept of making firearms safe or at least keeping them controlled under lock and key and keeping ammunition separate, for example. What do you think your success rate is going to be? That's an excellent question. I think I want to back up a little bit and and just say that we're in the place of just trying to understand what families know. And I think we have to be able to target the information that families want to know in order to know what our success rate is going to be. So, if we do this right, I think our success rate will be quite good. In other words, giving family the information that they need in order to start the dialogue with their loved ones about their concerns, being able to then take action if there is a problem. And if we target this in, in a way that's either too high a level or it doesn't address enough, I think our success rate is going to be pretty poor. <laughs> what we have done so far is 15 interviews with family members to try to gauge what do they know, what do they want to know, what do they need help with. And it's been very, very interesting to learn. Most family members feel totally ill-equipped to be able to have these discussions with, with their veteran spouses. They feel they don't have the information about guns. They don't know how to handle them. By and large, most family members felt ill-equipped to know even how to start the discussion, that their veterans were the ones that control the guns and know everything about guns, and they're not taken seriously about any 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 concerns re- related to the guns. And so how do you bridge that gap? How do you have veterans hear you and your concerns, and what words do you use to bring it up? Um, I think we're, we're really kind of at, at that level. And then what do you say and what are your options if you've got concerns and and you can have that conversation? Um, And one of the things that we have learned is you really need to involve others. So um, either peers, 
other family members, it's a very hard conversation to have on your own. And that's where we are now. Um, and one of the things I'm hoping that this uh, program can help with is that we are trying to now find families who've had successful conversations, families who have successfully navigated being able to bring up their concerns and then having a family plan about what to do about it. Uh, we've talked to many, many families where it didn't go well or they never had the conversation that they wanted. What we're now trying to do is find families where it, it went well and then we can use that as an example for our, for our training and our teaching. So again, the answer to your question about how well we're going to do really depends upon how well we, we capture what the concerns are and then put it in a format that families can use and understand. And like anything else, this will probably get uh, your process will probably get better and and more efficient and more targeted as you gain experience with it, right? I, I would think so. I mean, we're working with um, Elaine Frank and Kathy Barber, who are um, they they're the ones that develop the training for providers on on lethal means safety. They are so excited about this project because they think that it's really important. Providers at one level, as I said, but families are completely different. So we have some of the leading experts in the training, and what we're, what we're leaning towards now is a very interactive um, website that you can go to with stories um, of different family members and veterans with things that you can kind of click on that will give you more information. And I think kind of that's where we are at the moment. We have to go into production probably in April throughout the spring and summer. But it's it's going to be hopefully very interactive, very appealing, um, and not your typical training that, that you take when you're a professional that you, you know, check the boxes and take quizzes. That's not what this is at all. Sit and listen to a PowerPoint. Exactly. Um, right. Um, you know, part of, part of our you know reaching out to families was what what do you want to hear? What's the best format? They absolutely said, you know, <laughs> it can't feel like it's school. It's got to be personal, real life stories of people that have done this. Okay, and that vehicle when you get that all wrapped up the way you want it, so actually delivering. This will be called COM, right? Counseling about lethal means? Yes, for families. For families. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I have to imagine that uh, starting a conversation about affecting his access or her access to a weapon is a bit like starting the conversation with an alcoholic about taking exactly. his bottle away, right? Exactly. Yes. Um, and, and yet, it, in certain circumstances, it's incredibly important if you want to keep that person alive. And so how do you do that? How do you bridge that? How do you navigate that? What words do you use? Um, and that's what we're trying to do. It's it's a it's not an easy task. We're not interested in taking these weapons away. That's not the purpose. It's how do you express your concern about a loved one um, and make sure that they're, that they're going to be alive to to keep to keep going. And so, really, that the who do, who else can you involve in this discussion as, as you so rightly pointed out it's a really hard discussion but maybe if their buddy is there also and you know they can help navigate that discussion or maybe you know we talked to several people where they, the the father-in-law came in and and was helpful in in, in having a sit down discussion um, so it's really kind of broadening the discussion 
broadening the horizons of, of how you have this discussion and the importance of having it in the right circumstance. Okay, so when you've actually developed this and have a manual and you have a, a method that you go about this as a standard, will this be strictly a New York State program, or do you expect it to be adopted and go elsewhere, or will it even be a statewide program? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we're, we're really targeting New York State right now, although I, the, the idea is that this will be very popular and likely be disseminated to other states. They'll have to add in the specifics about some of the laws, the storage laws uh, in different states. But um, my guess is that this is going to be rolled out in a much larger way. You used the word standard operating procedure. It made me a little anxious because I don't know that we have anything that definitive. For mental health professionals that are going right. to be talking to family members wherever they are, I mean, you you all have to be on the same page, I would think. Yeah, so this is a training that goes directly to the family member. So family members will be the ones who are watching this training or participating in the training. We we aren't going through the providers to get to the family members. This is going to be like the family member is going to go to the website and they're going yep. to be able to exactly. look at the exactly. the uh, training resources and and, exactly. and the points from there. Yep. So so the the idea for this came about and one of the reasons why the New York State Health Foundation liked it was because they, they remembered when you're talking about prostate problems and the need for a prostate exam, when they advertised directly to the men, they had a certain percentage of people that went and got their checkups. When they advertised to the spouses who then bugged their husbands to go get the prostate exams, the, the rate was much higher. We're going directly to the family member to tell them about these issues educate them, let them know what resources are out there, give them some tips on how to understand if there's even a problem to begin with. So what are the warning signs? What are the things, some of the things that you would see in in someone who's suicidal or you're concerned about? And then tips on, okay, if you do notice those things and there are some firearms in the house and they're not necessarily stored correctly, you know, what are some things that you could do to make the house safer? Um, and how do you bring that discussion up? Um, where are the guns stored? Where is the, is, are they locked? Is the ammunition separate, just as you mentioned before? Um, do the guns need to be taken out of the house because temporarily, because things are quite worrisome for your loved one? If so, where would you, who, who could, who could store those for you? Do you? Is there a friend? Is there a peer? Is there a family member? What, what are the implications of that? How do you get it back? Those kinds of, just kind of being able to discuss those issues, have the resources and have the support to kind of know what the next steps are. And that's what this training would be about. And how do you do it in a way, as you asked the question previously, that we succeed in having family members feel comfortable learning about this and then the family member having the ability to actually make some changes to make the house safer. So you can, you're continuing this effort even though you're getting down to the point where you want to actually develop this website and get this all up and running by, I believe you said your target would be Veterans Day, would yes. be great, yep. right? Yep. But you continue to compile stories and examples from loved ones and, and folks, uh, good and bad, so you know kind of what works and doesn't work? Right, exactly. We've got a lot of stories of what didn't work. <laughs> uh, we also... Um, 
we did some interviews of people who lost a veteran to firearm suicide to try to understand where did things go wrong. We did uh, several interviews of veterans who've had a, ser a serious suicide attempt from firearms and where, where things went wrong. And then we did interviews of just family members who had veterans with firearms in the home, but not necessarily a suicide history. Um, just to see how they were able to discuss this and negotiate this. But the success stories, which we really want to be able to highlight in this training, we still we have some. We would really like some additional ones. So if there are listeners who are hearing the story, who've been able to have this discussion, who've been able to navigate uh, safer storage, we'd love to learn from you. So you must be a mind reader because that was going to be my final question is uh, what do you need from our listeners, uh, the contact information? How can they help? Okay, so thank you for that because I really appreciate this. is This is a team effort. If we're going to bring veteran suicide rates down. It's on all of us. And so I appreciate the opportunity to, to even come talk to you about this. But what we need is family members, as I mentioned, who've been able to navigate this so we can learn. We would like to be able to even feature some of these stories on the website. Um, I think other family members want to be validated and, and know that there are people who have managed this. So that's an inspiration. And the best way to do that is to contact me directly, Mary Ann Goodman, phone number 646-245-7071 or email mggoodman2001 at yahoo.com. Keeping the home safe with firearms is not unique to veterans. They're, they're just, I think the statistic is that twice as many suicide deaths occur in firearms and veteran population than civilians, but they're certainly happening in civilians also. Okay, well, I want to thank you, Mary Ann Goodman, for joining us on Let's Talk Vets on WJFF Radio Catskill, and uh, we certainly appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate speaking with you as well. Well, we wish to acknowledge the following people and organizations that have made this show possible. Tonight, Everett Cox and Mary Ann Goodwin. And to you for joining us once again for Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. You can email me at vets at wjffradio.org. You can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Mark your calendars for a very special Memorial Day edition of Let's Talk Vets, Wednesday, May 26th. Until then, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed.
This Week in This American Life. In New York, mostly people have given up on that 7 p.m. ritual, you know, where they bang pans and make noise as tribute to essential workers and healthcare workers, except on 118th Street.